Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod comes to you from policyforum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you want to learn from some of the world's most experienced policy researchers and practitioners, there really isn't a better place to get your qualification. We offer a wide range of masters, short courses, PhD programs, everything you could want to suit your career in public policy. So check them out and find out how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And we really look forward to welcoming you to the school. Today, we want to turn our attention to COVID-19 in the Pacific. The good news is that case numbers in the region remain comparatively low, but the bad news is that Pacific nations are bearing the brunt of the economic downturn brought about by the pandemic. Labelled a humanitarian crisis by the CSO Alliance of Civil Society Groups in Fiji, Countries in the region face myriad challenges from COVID-19-related job losses, weakened food security, poor access to health, education and other essential services. Last week, Policy Forum published an interactive map that sheds light on case numbers and state of emergency declarations and policy responses in Pacific Island countries. You can find it on policyforum.net. This amazing new resource has been put together with our colleagues at ANU Carto GIS, the Australia Pacific Security College and the ANU Department of Pacific Affairs. So this week on Policy Forum Pod, we're going to take a look at the pandemic's impact on the region, how it's managing the crisis, and how policymakers both in the Pacific and in Australia can help tackle some of those impacts. And to tackle these questions, we've invited three stellar Pacific experts to join us today, including two who have worked together on this new interactive map. So I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Professor Meg Keane. Meg is the Director of the Australia Pacific Security College at Crawford School. Hello, Meg. 
Good afternoon, Martin. And I'm delighted to be joined remotely by, firstly, uh, Dr. Henry Ivaraturi, who is a Pacific lecturer at Crawford School. He's uh, worked at the National Research Institute and at the Department of uh, Prime Minister. Hello, Henry. Hello, Martin. And last but certainly not least, also joining us remotely is Dr. Nicole Haley. She is an Associate Professor and Head of Department at the Department of Pacific Affairs, and she also heads the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade-funded Pacific Research Program. Hello, Nicole. Hi, Martin. Okay, so Meg and Nicole, you've been working together on this new Pacific COVID-19 interactive map. Perhaps if I turn to you first, Meg, can you tell us a little about why you developed it and how it works? Yeah, well, we developed it really in response to demand of the people out in the region, but also policymakers wanting in one place easily accessible information about the incidence of COVID, policy responses such as state of emergency, emergencies, border restrictions, and then also what the donors were doing and a better idea or a better access, more easy access to academic analysis. So we originally had at the Australia Pacific Security College a matrix, but uh, talking with our colleagues over at the Department of Pacific Affairs, we thought we could make this far more accessible by a map with just easy clicks and you can see the incidents, click on something else, you can get your analysis and another click and you're off to what the policy responses are. So it's been a collaborative effort with those working on the Pacific at the Australian National University. And our colleagues over at the Department of Pacific Affairs are contributing analysis, as are we, and their insights. And we're also working with other colleagues at Crawford at the Development Policy Center that works on the Pacific. So it's been a collaborative effort. And I guess the people who are using it know that every week on a Wednesday gets updated and they can access what's new in the region. Nicole, let me turn to you. How do you hope this map will improve the level of awareness people have about the situation in the Pacific? I think by bringing um, the data all together in one place, it makes it far more accessible. So you're not having to search individual countries uh, and what they're doing. And because it's such a um, fast-moving situation, I think it's it's actually been difficult to keep on top of you know, what's happening in individual countries. And so having this together in one place is obviously really helpful, both for researchers here, but also in the region. Is a really terrific resource. Now, let's have a look at what is actually happening in the region. Up until now, there have been around 2,400 confirmed positive cases of COVID-19 in the Pacific. That includes uh, a little over 2,000 cases in West Papua and Papua province in Indonesia. But the Pacific has largely avoided the worst health impacts of the virus. But countries in the region are certainly feeling the economic strain of the pandemic. Meg, researchers from Massey University have found that Tourism accounts for up to 70% of GDP and around one in four jobs across the South Pacific. With global travel now ground to a halt, how is that playing out in Pacific nations? It's a really big impact for those countries, and there's a lot of diversity in the Pacific, that are reliant on tourism. So if you want to get a, a feel for some of these things, uh, last year in about June 
uh, Fiji had about 76,000 tourists coming and it's nearly down to zero now. Job losses are huge. And that has a flow throughout their economies from everything from the craft industry, food production. We were just talking this morning with colleagues from Fiji and they were saying with the kids going back to school, one of the schools surveyed and 60% of parents have reduced work or no job at all. So you can see really big impacts in our region. Uh, countries like Fiji, Vanuatu, 50% of their GDP is coming from tourism, which is now going down to next to nothing. So really big impact and multiplier effects. Nicole, let me turn to you and ask you a little about healthcare systems in the region. I mean, as I said, there, you know, there have only been sort of two and a half thousand confirmed positive cases, but are the healthcare systems in the Pacific region coping? And would countries in the Pacific be prepared to respond to if there were higher numbers of infections? I think that was the big concern at the start of the pandemic was how would Pacific Island countries cope? Um, I think the reality is that the healthcare systems uh, are quite limited and lack infrastructure and equipment um, in many of these countries. And obviously, it varies um, profoundly. I mean, places like PNG, we've seen the health system deteriorate um, quite significantly over the past couple of decades. So I think it was partly in response to recognising that, that, that the Pacific responded so quickly and so decisively um, to the pandemic. We saw just prior to the pandemic, the end of last year, early this year, uh, in Samoa, they experienced a, a measles epidemic. And I think certainly at the height of that, they there are some estimates that uh, it was sort of 300% over the, the carrying capacity of the health system. To, to respond to that. So that was an isolated case. Um, and it, in that case, I think the, the state of emergency for the measles pandemic finished just a week before a new state of emergency and a response to uh, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Henry, Papua New Guinea has so far only had 11 cases. You're currently based there. What's the situation like on the ground? Yes, currently 11 people have been confirmed. Um, the situation regarding the state of emergency has been lifted, but the restrictions still apply. Um, but, you know, when you walk around town, people, um, social distancing and all that um, really doesn't happen. People are actually going about life as normal. But the, um, the control of the state of emergency, particularly the um, deputy, uh, Dr. Paison uh, Takulala has been warning people that there may be a potential surge in the next couple of weeks. Even the, the controller is also uh, informing people to, uh, you know, play safe um, because they anticipate a, a spike in the next couple of weeks. And that's also even coming from uh, Dr. Glenn Muller, who is a uh, long-time resident medical uh, specialist here at PNG. I think, Martin, in the case of PNG, the three most recent cases that they've had um, have clearly been through community transmission. And prior to that, I think 
each of the cases they'd linked back to, you know, sort of incoming passengers or, or different things. So um, I think that's where the, the big concern now is coming in PNG. And also the just the lack of monitoring or coverage across the country. So there could be pockets that we're unaware of, and therefore you can't have that rapid response. And as Henry can talk about, that's particularly a concern up at the border area where in your intro, Martin, or your, your recent comments, you were talking about thousands. And in Indonesia, it's tens of thousands of cases are sitting right there um, on the border of Papua. New Guinea and it's a porous border. So uh, when we were talking before about the impact of uh, of, of tourism, um, you, Maggie made the point about how many people have lost their jobs and presumably it's going to be a very long time before those, those roles bounce back. But what about welfare systems in the region? I mean, is there help available for those who have lost their job due to the pandemic? There has been some countries that have given um, economic stimulus and some handouts to households. But the reality is, in the Pacific, there are not strong social protection systems. And the social protection systems are your community. And so that says a lot about when we look to interventions, it's not just about supporting governments, it's supporting the CSOs and the NGOs that are able to reach those communities. And that then starts to bring in the really important issue in the Pacific, where there's a lot of subsistence economy activity, that if you are supporting people looking after their welfare, and the fact that they can meet their basic needs, and that certainly is food security, then you've got to be looking at how you're working with the organizations, the agencies, a lot of them community-based, to ensure that that help is getting where it needs to be. I guess another issue that's, that's interesting to me is how this pandemic, and perhaps I'll put this to you, Henry, how this pandemic is sort of playing out in terms of the political stability of the nations across across the Pacific. We've obviously got a, a lot of different countries in there with a lot of different political systems. But can you give us give us some sense of uh, you know how it is actually impacting on political stability? The level of uh, cooperation between uh, governments on both sides of parliament, opposition and government, has uh, has been very strong. It's unprecedented where we have seen uh, both opposition and government vote overwhelmingly for uh, laws to be amended uh, in response to the uh, to the uh, fight or to address COVID-19, uh, which is a, a common thread. So um, there are issues around uh, instability, but I think they are arising out of the way Things have been played out. For uh, for example, in PNG, there are issues about democracy, especially empowering a few bureaucrats with enormous emergency powers to regulate human behavior and movement. Um, there are also issues with uh, how the uh, law enforcement agencies have enforced emergency uh, regulations uh, where public have been mistreated and public have retaliated, um, but those have been dealt with quickly. But those are issues for uh, future efforts. 
There's also issues about uh, transparency and accountability on the use of public funds. Uh, some of the emergency, particularly in PNG, uh, public accountability is uh, excused uh, by the steps that have been taken, and there are people have raised issues about it because public money is used to address an issue, and they think that public money should be properly accounted for uh, as per proper government laws and legislations, particularly public finance acts. Um, the, also, the enactment of the uh, recent uh, pandemic law uh, raised concerns around um, rights, liberties, and freedoms. Uh, not only that, but there were issues. There are issues about the laws following a proper process, proper consultation process, where everybody is informed and contribute to the process, so that um, issues that have been raised now by the public uh, are addressed. Uh, first before the law is enacted. Um, the problem is also, Martin, it's also about, uh, it's also an economic problem uh, with external shocks exposing the vulnerability of small island states. Um, there is drop in remittances. Um, the economy is expected to con uh, contract. So many uh, small island states will struggle financially to sustain operations and provide enough public, uh, effective public services because um, there will be drop in revenue and all that. So those issues might probably contribute to um, maybe stability issues, but uh, we will wait and see. Martin, if I could add something there, I think, you know, particularly in relation to the Melanesian countries, and so here I'm talking Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, uh, Vanuatu. I think that what we've seen, you know, sort of over the past few decades is a increasing uh, localization of, of politics and even national level politics. Uh, so that um, voters, you know, will vote locally and they vote for um, MPs who they think will deliver services to them. And, and I'm sure Henry will agree with me that there are a number of very high-profile cases in PNG, you know, in recent years where um, very well-performing members of parliament who were taking a very, I suppose, um, national response in relation to their portfolios um, didn't get re-elected at the next election and their constituents felt that they were too focused on national issues and not focused enough on local issues and delivering to their constituents locally. And one of the things that we've seen with COVID-19 is the, the sort of response, these strong and decisive responses that we've seen around the region have required members of parliament to both think and to act collectively and to think, you know, have really delivered a national response. So I think it's going to be interesting to see, particularly as um, people, are, you know, the, the citizens are in, in many cases suffering under the restrictions that have been put in place, how this will play out um, come the next election. Because I think it will actually be detrimental for some members of parliament in terms of their re-election campaigns. And if we look to history as well, we can see that um, past pandemics and certainly the um, 
1918-1919 flu pandemic in Samoa, which saw them lose a quarter of their population, um, had profound effects on on Samoa. They not only lost a quarter of the population, a fifth of the population, they lost nearly half of all their Matai title holders. Um, and it resulted in a whole lot of sort of anti-New Zealand sentiment because the the flu was brought to Samoa on a ship that left from New Zealand. Um, but it also gave rise to um, this nationalistic sentiment that set Samoa on a very early path to independence. So there are examples from the region where these type of events have had a profound uh, politics, a, a profound effect on politics. And it remains to be seen what's going to happen, I think, in the Pacific. And those pressures are going to rise because what we are seeing is as GDP goes down, which is from many sources, commodity prices going down, tourism going down, less remittances, there's less to spend. There's less resources for, as Nicole's talking about, those MPs to look after their people and to get the services to where they're needed, particularly as many of the urban people have returned to uh, rural and provincial places. So there's not a lot of reserves in the system. Some of these countries already have high levels of debt. So economic stimulus is not an easy answer or less they are getting assistance from multilaterals, donors. Uh, to make that happen. So those vulnerabilities, as this goes on for six, 12 months or more, uh, are really going to build. So really, it's a case of watch this space in terms of what the uh, political impact of that might be. Well, look, this sounds like a good time to take a quick break, but listeners, do stick around. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm still chatting with Meg, Henry and Nicole, and I want to move on to talk about some of the policy responses in the Pacific and Australia as well. Nicole, when our listeners look at this fantastic interactive map, they'll see uh, the variety of policy measures that have been put in place to combat COVID-19 in the Pacific. Could you give us a snapshot of some of the most effective policy responses that we've seen across the region? I think by far and away the most effective response that we've seen in the Pacific is um, through closing the borders and through the quarantine measures that have been put in place. So by restricting travel, They've restricted 
uh, the likelihood of, of um, folk with infection coming into their countries. And we can see how effective this has been because 10 of the 12 countries in the world that don't have any cases of COVID are actually in the Pacific. And if I could add to that, I, I think one of the global um, leadership pieces that has occurred is the Pacific Humanitarian Corridor that was set up that enabled, even though these border lockdowns had occurred, which Nicole was explaining, to get essential supplies in, uh, which was personal protective equipment, ventilators, and all the other things one needed to to combat COVID. But we also have to remember during this time, concurrently, we had Tropical Cyclone Herald hit a number of these countries in Melanesia. So then they needed food assistance and the donors could not get in. They could fly the planes in, drop things off, and then the local distribution systems had to, to move in. But having said that, at least we got that corridor open. It's still functioning and it's a bit of a lifeline, frankly, uh, to the rest of the world. These are very remote societies without a lot of, well, they don't have their own production systems for, for this kind of equipment. And uh, so they need to, to have those lines open. And so that Pacific Humanitarian Corridor, which was a collaboration, Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific community, the governments, was a really important initiative and not really happening anywhere else in the world to the same effective uh, manner. So that's some of the good stuff. But, you know, Meg, this crisis is extraordinary in the way that it's impacting so many different facets of people's lives in the region. And, and governments are in many ways frantically trying to keep up. Are there any policy issues that are falling through the cracks in the region or is it still too early to tell? Well, I think we can. We know what we're watching at the moment. This is a complex uh, and contested space, so there's really the importance to cooperate and collaborate rather than everybody trying to do their own thing and brand it their own way. And that coordination and collaboration has been often tough in this region uh, between the donor agencies, and that's something we really need to watch. What's being raised by the World Health Organization and the Pacific community is while we're focused on combating COVID-19, that's distracting resources that uh, are needed for pre-existing development pressures. So by far, the thing that kills the most people in the Pacific are non-communicable diseases. That's about 75% of the deaths that occur in the Pacific. Those people need those essential services and resources So you need a health system that is responding across the board and resources not being overly diverted to one area. Climate change goes on. And if we neglect uh, setting up a resilient society, which responds to food security issues, climate security issues, and these health security issues, we set up a vulnerability for the future. So These are the things that we've got to really watch for. Uh, For myself, it's the informal communities that still don't get enough attention, yet they basically support the livelihoods of the majority of the people in the Pacific. And the other one I would put a plug in for that I haven't seen a lot of attention to at the moment is youth. They are being hit by job losses, by um, difficulties to access education services. Parents don't have money to help them get back to the schools. This is the next generation, and we need donors to really think about how we're helping them out. 
Henry, one response, one policy response that comes to mind is the much discussed travel bubble that was initially planned between Australia and New Zealand, but could be extended to Pacific Island nations. What does that policy represent for Pacific countries? And are there concerns now in the Pacific that given what's happening in Melbourne with the whole city going into lockdown, that it may now not happen? The possibility of it not happening is is now high with the uh, resurfacing of uh, COVID in Melbourne. Um, that'll significantly have impact on the economies of, of the Pacific. Uh, we can note um, particularly uh, seasonal worker um, in, income of remittances that support island countries, particularly Tonga. So one of the areas that you will see uh, that'll, that's already having an impact in the islands is the uh, decline in remittances. I think for Tonga in February 2020, it dropped by about 8.5%. And global, you know, economic trends are stating that it might might drop to about twenty percent in twenty twenty. So that'll, you know, have a a a rolling effect on the economies of small island states, particularly like Tonga and Samoa, that rely heavily on remittances. And I think DFAT is on the record to say that they don't see the travel bubble happening till early next year. And that's optimistic, things going well. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have strong health systems, uh, huge vulnerabilities. And the, the risks, as Nicole's been pointing out, are really high if you get one of these highly contagious viruses going through these countries. At the moment, the focus is on repatriation of those that have been stuck overseas, and that's been a real challenge. That's where we have got the last three cases in Fiji. And I think Vanuatu has hit the pause button after bringing a 1,000 people back, and it's been really tough for them to do the quarantine process and look after their people properly. They have no cases at the moment. But uh, this is really challenging this whole idea of a, a travel bubble and making it safe for the people of the Pacific as well as those that are traveling internationally. Meg, staying with you, back in March, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said, and I quote here, our Pacific Island family must be a focus of international support. There's never been a more important time for Australia's Pacific step up as we all face these massive challenges. Is Australia delivering on on that kind of commitment? They are certainly maintaining uh, their assistance to the region. I don't think we've seen a huge increase uh, in investment. There's been a redirection of funds, and and that has been significant and done well. So we're certainly there. We're certainly the largest donor. We're certainly staying engaged, no question about that. Uh, It depends on the challenges as they come. And just trying to rush in and open up a travel bubble because we can would be a big mistake. And I think the cautious approach that Australia is taking to these kind of issues is correct and the right one. So now we have to look at where the pressures are going to come with the economic uh, economies going down and they are going to get hit hard and how we cushion that as much as we can. And that's going to need uh, significant investment if this goes on for up to a year, which could well be the case. 
Nicole, let me turn to you and throw a sort of uh, impossible question at you, really. We've, we've talked about a virus that we don't know where the end point is. We don't know whether there's going to be a vaccine or when that vaccine may come. We've talked about some of the hugely uh, difficult effects that are playing out in the Pacific. If that travel if that travel bubble doesn't start until next year or even to the towards the middle of next year, and we've still got the sort of effects of COVID-19 sort of rolling out around the Pacific and around the world. What does the outlook look like for the Pacific over the next six months or over the next 12 months? Get you to look into your sort of crystal ball and give, her, give us a bit of a picture of that. Um, thanks, Martin. Look, I think really the picture doesn't look good. Um, I think that, um, again, if we look to the, to the past, for examples, um, the, the 1918 flu pandemic provides a really good example because there the, the countries and the territories that were being serviced out of Australia, Australia did what it's done now. It locked down. It, um, you know, stopped um, a lot of the shipping to different countries and that meant that um, a number of countries were protected from that, that, that main wave of the flu pandemic. So PNG, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, all of those countries um, avoided the main wave of the pandemic because of the strict administrative measures that Australia put in place at that time, right? But PNG and New Caledonia subsequently experienced really deadly epidemics at the tail end of the main pandemic in 1920 and 1921. So I think, you know, we can't let our guard down on this, you know, in, in terms of the the Pacific, until there's effective vaccine, um, I think we are going to be living with this new normal. But even once um, a vaccine is available, I mean, I think if we look at the, you know, the health systems in many of these countries, they're already struggling to, um, to ensure that their citizens you know, have adequate vaccination coverage, uh, et cetera. So even once a vaccine is found, I think many of the countries in the region are going to, to struggle to provide their citizens with the coverage that, that, that will be needed. So they're going to be living with this for a very, very long time. Now, we are coming to the end of our conversation here, but there's a couple of questions I'd like to – well, firstly, a question for you, Meg. What do you think could be learned from the successes and struggles in the region's COVID-19 response so far? Are there lessons maybe for the Pacific, but actually maybe for the, uh, for the, for the rest of the world as well? Well, I think the disease isn't going to respect boundaries and borders, and therefore our responses can't. And what we've learned is when we want to be effective, there is that collaboration that's needed and cooperation, particularly in countries uh, that don't have a lot of resources and can't be doing research on various aspects or, or getting vaccines in place. We've had some inspiring examples after APEC. We had four different donor countries decide that they would come together to try and get a electrification uh, to PNG and, and Henry might want to say more about this, but for 70% of PNG, that was about working together. The key regional agencies that are playing a strong role in responding to COVID and advising the governments, the Pacific Island Forum, the Pacific Community, 
They are part of a regional architecture that has strength. So I think that's important. And then, as I was saying before, don't forget where the strength of the Pacific is, and that's in its uh, communities, in its social structures and social networks. And if we're going to be successful in combating this and cushioning these economic shocks, we have to work with these community agencies and organizations where learning again and again from cyclones and everything else that localization and using community structures and community organizations is very effective at reaching out to remote and vulnerable people. And that's key, I think, to the response that we need to have. So finally, a a question for all of you, but perhaps Henry, I will start with you on this. This is a podcast which is focused on policy and is listened to by policymakers from throughout the region. So what active steps can policymakers in the Pacific and in Australia take to help address the ongoing challenges the the region is facing due to COVID-19? What advice would you give to policymakers? I think like like, uh, Nicole, I I draw on my um, advice from the 1918 influenza in the Pacific. And the advice is for authorities to remain vigilant. Uh, they, they, they ought to be, they, they should not be complacent. And I think they have to maintain and sustain a long-term uh, surveillance, monitoring, and, and quarantine program uh, so that, you know, that prevents not only COVID, but other highly infectious diseases Entering uh, Pacific Island states. That that is the lesson from the past. It's a lesson that's relevant to us today. So not just following the science, but also learning the lessons from history. Nicole, what about you? What would be your advice to policymakers listening to this, in terms of what they might do to help uh, address those challenges? I think it's going to be really important to keep um, keep a focus on the the most vulnerable people. I think Meg talked about how in the Pacific, you know, communities uh, are the source of resilience in many cases, but communities in the informal sector are very much affected too, you know. So it's not just those informal employment and the reduction in remittances and the reduction in tourism, but um, the restrictions that have been put in place to stop the spread of disease um, have seen markets shut down, those informal markets, and this is going to place incredible pressure on communities because the Pacific is both rapidly growing in its population but increasingly urban populations, and inf- urban populations rely on these informal markets um, to to survive. So I think keeping an eye on that. A lot of the, the immediate response, and obviously it, it, it was necessary to focus on getting, you know, the equipment and the PPE and support to government and things. But even if you look at what Australia's done so far, I think about three quarters of the support it's given has been in budget support. Um, and if we just continue to work through budget support or if that is the primary sort of um, vehicle then I don't think it's going to reach the most vulnerable. So balancing, I, I think, the, the res, you know, balancing how we respond and how we assist to make sure that we're 
we are doing things that will reach out to those people who need it most. Yes, indeed. And what about you, Meg? Last word to you. <laughs> Real quick, I'd say just don't take your eye off of the big game. Don't get so focused on COVID that you forget about climate change and other social development issues because that will hurt us in the longer run. And issues like food systems and food security and informality are what going to give these people resilience. So I guess just reflecting on your 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 earlier comment, if we just keep moving money around to deal with the bigger problems, you're going to make holes somewhere. And so it's looking for those connections and not forgetting the good work we've done in the development program and not keeping an eye on those really pressing issues of the bigger health system, climate change and livelihoods. Well, this has been a really fascinating and important discussion to have. So uh, let me uh, congratulate all three of you on your work on the interactive map. I think it's a terrific resource. And thank you so much for your time today, Meg, Henry and Nicole. Thank you, Martin. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Thank you, Martin. My thanks again to Meg, Henry and Nicole for that discussion. And don't forget, you can check out the interactive COVID-19 Pacific map. You can find it at policyforum.net. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you with your thoughts on what we've talked about today or on any of our podcasts. You can find us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, that's A-P-P-S Policy Forum, or simply shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you're on Facebook, you should definitely join our pod squad there. You can find the pod team, our lovely listeners, and a whole bunch of our guests under Policy Forum Pod. Join the Facebook group and you'll also get exclusive access to our Ask Policy Forum series, the podcast where you ask the questions. We'll regularly ask you to submit your questions to the group, so don't forget to look us up once you're done listening to the podcast. Did you like today's episode? Then make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and maybe even leave us a quick review. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows from. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, stay safe, look after yourself and one another, and cheerio for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.